0: All right, hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Stories of Selling Human Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Smith, and I started this podcast because I believe everyone in the world will someday be faced with a situation, could be business, it could be personal, that requires you to create change. I think we all wanna be heard, seen, and understood, but the people who get our attention and convince, persuade, or influence us, they are not just salespeople. There are great humans throughout all walks of life that. We're drawn to i'm going to share their stories here so that we can tap into what makes us human practice our human skills and ultimately we'll all become better at selling by being human all right gang this is a, definitely a seminal day for the podcast when i first started this i, I was so inspired by this person's book to sell as human which is such a great title he's the author of six provocative books about business and human behavior his books include the long running New York Times bestsellers, When and A Whole New Mind, as well as the number one New York Times bestsellers, Drive and To Sell as Human. His books have won numerous awards, sold a million copies, and have been translated into more than 40 languages. And he lives in Washington, D.C., where my family is uh, from. My dad grew up with his family, and he's a, a heck of a guy to ride an elevator with. Please welcome none other than Dan. Pink to the podcast. Welcome, Dan Pink. it's good to be here, Alex Smith. (laughs) First off, I have to thank you for writing your book. The audience thanks you. This podcast wouldn't exist kind of just about what you put out into the world. And, you know, I want to keep taking uh, it farther and just kind of, uh, yeah, shine a light on people that are doing what you taught so well in that book. So thank you so much for that. My first question is just in the book. You talked in the book about the new ABCs of selling and a lot of people are familiar with the movie Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross and Alec Baldwin and Always Be Closing and yours are A, being, a you know, attunement, being attuned, bring yourself into harmony with others, groups, context, buoyancy, being resilient uh, with rejection and clarity just to helping guide people into making decisions. So in the spirit of your book, in the first A, I'd like our listeners to get to know you beyond the book. So so Dan Pink, where are you from? And I'll tell you uh, why I asked uh, that and how that resonates with me.
1: Well, it's an interesting question, uh, where am I from? But the way I'll I'll answer that question is I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, uh, in central Ohio. So when people ask me where I'm from, that's where I'm from. Now, I actually was not born there. I was actually, believe it or not, I was born in Wilmington, Delaware. But I lived from age six through age eighteen in Columbus, Ohio, and so that's where I think that I'm from. And it's kind of an interesting concept because if you, you like, that's only a fraction of my life, and yet you ask me that question, and my instinct is that that's uh, where the answer. I- I've lived in, I've lived in Washington D.C. Let's see here, over twice as long as that. I've lived in Washington D.C. since 1993, so I'm coming up on like 28. So it's 28 years. 20 years in Washington, 12 in Columbus, but I'm from Columbus. It's funny. We relate on that because, you know,
0: I see like you're probably at this time, you, you might be considering yourself almost a native, like you're a fan of like DC sports teams. You kind of like connect to the city. I grew up born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska and moved to Rockville, Maryland when I was 12 or 13. My dad got a job at the Smithsonian, his dream job, and he grew up there and my mom still lives there. But I've lived in Philly for 10 years now in Tampa, Florida. And so it's, it's weird. I would have clung to Omaha. And now I'm kind of like, you know, where I'm, I'm from outside of DC, but I've also lived in Philly for a long time. Yeah, so you yeah, kind yeah. of have to clarify yourself.
1: Yeah. But also when it comes to sports teams, I mean, this is a good time to be from Tampa because it's now Tampa Bay.
0: Yeah. But I am a transplant. I am still a diehard Washington football fan and Nebraska corn. Sorry to hear that. Oh yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> I am sorry as well, but we'll see. We'll see this next year about the the team. But if it's all right with you, I want to tell you a little twist on that question that I learned from my dad, if it's all right. I'm curious to get your thoughts about it. So my dad asked a question, and I don't know what you think about this, but like, where are you from originally? And he added that word originally at the end. A year ago, he was in a hospital in, in Shady Grove, Maryland, actually, outside of DC, and he you know, a lot of people on the podcast know he was in there. He he was a DC native, worked the a Smithsonian teacher all his life, just fascinating, intelligent man, connected with people, lived all over Africa, could really connect with people. And I saw a concept, that concept in, in play in your book, where you ask people that question, where he would ask, he was in the hospital, you know, he uh, unfortunately had, had leukemia, he's in the hospital, but he would connect with these nurses by asking them, where are you from? These a lot of the nurses in Shady Grove Hospital, they're from other countries, Ethiopia, yeah. Ghana, Sierra Leone. And he has yeah. lived in those places. He, yeah. he lived in Sierra Leone for a year. So he would ask that question, where are you from originally? They would say Sierra Leone. And then he would say something like, howdy body, which is a Creo, the local language, K-R-I-O, local language of Sierra Leone. And they would light up. They would smile. and And oh, my God, like they never expected him to say that. And I'm like, this is it. This is like this, this connection that a simple question, but he added that because people think, oh, this is my identity. This is where I'm from. Curious what you think about something like that, that twist.
1: Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think that that question, where are you from, is also contextual. So if I'm on an airplane and someone makes the horrible mistake of talking to me (laughs) and asks where are you from? I would probably say Washington, because in yeah. that context, yeah. that's where I'm from. But anyway, it's a it's an interesting question because it invites the sort of things that you're exactly as you're describing.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to kind of talk about you. You connect a lot of things in your work, in your books. You you see a lot of things. And I think creativity, when I've I've had these interviews, the, the concept of creativity is just something that I don't feel like it's. Maybe taught enough in in sales. It certainly wasn't in my career, you know, something to 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 hone or it's something to you know, kind of like develop in yourself. And you you do it very well in your in your books. You, you take these concepts seemingly mundane, and you kind of you you create something out of nothing to help us understand these concepts. And you do that well as a writer. I'm curious as a reader because I'm I'm trying to get at like how we help ourselves kind of be more creative, as a reader, have you seen a concept play out like something that you've read in a book recently? Because I feel like people have probably read your books and have seen these concepts play out in their lives. It certainly did for me and this podcast. Have you read uh, something recently where as a reader, you actually saw that that concept or a philosophy
1: actually play itself out in your day-to-day life? I think that's the mark of a good book in some ways. And and the thing is, it's not that, that these things were, here's the thing though, Alex, those things were always there. It's that someone gave you the lens and the vocabulary, the lens to see it and the vocabulary to describe it. So, I mean, the first book that comes to mind on that is a book called Useful Delusions by Shankar Vedantam. And this is a book about how you know, we, we think that, that being like not psychiatrically delusional, but like thinking like our kids are the greatest thing in the world or thinking that, hey, if I start a business, even though most businesses fail, I'm going to make it. Or even if 50 percent of marriages end in divorce, nobody goes in there saying, oh, I think my marriage will end in a divorce. And what this book lays out is that actually some of these delusions are functional. Some of these delusions actually help us thrive. Some of these delusions actually help us get through the day. And and so it made me think uh, in the sense of like seeing it play out. It's not as if I saw it play out out there. It's sort of, I said, hey, wait a second. I do that too. Yep. You kind of relate it back to yourself. Yeah.
0: So I just feel like there's all
1: these situations, a lot of people
0: that may not really feel like they're in sales. We, we say that concept. We are, you know, everyone's in sales. And I think if you titled your book, we're all in sales, it might not have done as well as it did because people are somewhat scared of the word. So I guess to kind of back up, like, did you, in that concept of like seeing something that convinced you, because I think things can convince us, not just people, things or events can convince us that we need to pursue something. So, you know, simply what convinced you that, you know, you needed to write this book, maybe you saw a series of things, but, you know, it's a lot of years to or a lot of time devoted to actually writing a book about something.
1: Uh, Yeah, it was, it is a lot of time. Writing a book takes a lot of time. You devote a a significant amount of time and mental energy to it, not only in the creating of the book, but in sort of living with it for a long time. That's why picking a topic you're genuinely interested in is important. So this book that we're talking about came out a few years ago. I'm still talking about it. You know, (laughs) that's good. That's a good thing. That's get. Don't get me wrong. That's a good thing. So there were a bunch of different things that came together, that propelled me to write this one of them was simply looking at my own life and my own calendar and thinking like what do I do all day and I realized that a big part of it was trying to convince people of stuff Uh, and not only try to convince people of buying my books or whatever but I mean if you look on my screen right now it's like I'm working on another book and so I'm you know working with my editor and we're making some edits and I'm trying to convince him no that doesn't make sense and he's trying to convince me hey that does make sense So that's just like, and that has nothing to do with sales per se, but it has to do with persuasion, influence, convincing, cajoling, et cetera. To some extent, I'm trying to convince your listeners right now that what I have to say is worth listening to and is persuasive. So so just looking at my own life made me think about that. So that's one thing. Second thing is that uh, I wrote a book called Drive uh, before this book, To Sell as Human. And that book was about the science of motivation and how a lot of the things that we use in organizations to motivate people, particularly contingent rewards. Like if you do this, then you get that. Those are far less effective than we think, especially for more complicated tasks. And in response to that, people, some readers said, well, what about sales? And I was like, huh, what about sales? And I started looking around and I realized that there were actually some interesting models out there that had just emerged where they were getting rid of the typical kind of sales commissions that we would find in more old fashioned sales. So that's kind of interesting. And part of that was that the work of what salespeople did had actually changed. So that's another thing. The other thing I think that was always in the back of my head. So those two things are sort of in the front of my head because they've been pushed there. But this one is always lingering in the back of my head, which was this. So I've been writing about business for 20 years. And part of what I do is I talk to people about their work. And, you know, I find that endlessly fascinating. But over the years, I had talked to a lot of people in sales, a lot of salespeople. And Truly, almost none of them conformed to the stereotype that the smarty pants people in my neighborhood have about salespeople. None of them were Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross people. None of them were these kind of slick, glad-handing kind of types. These people were freaking smart. They knew what they were doing. They were strategic. They were really good. They gave a shit, you know? And I'm like, huh. It always sounds like in the back of my head, it's like, why does the stereotype that I've heard and the reality that I'm seeing diverge so much? And so all these things together, uh, you know, and then also just looking at the universe of books about sales, which I didn't think took sales seriously enough as important, not only important in the sort of the success of an enterprise, but just important as a thing that human beings do. And that requires an enormous amount of sophistication. And so all those things together said, hey, maybe I'll spend several years of my life working on this.
0: I'm grateful that you did. Convince people, like, why is it so important, such an essential life skill?
1: Because that's what we do. I mean, here's the thing. Like, I did some research for this book. We asked people a question. We did a big survey, asked people a question. How much of your day, how much of your time is spent trying to convince people to give up something they value for something you can offer? Okay, so we didn't use the S word for sales, but we described what sales is. You give up something that you value for something that I can offer, right? It's an exchange, right? But again, purposely not using the word sales and also not talking to salespeople, talking to everybody, the entire workforce. And we found that people are spending, on average, the distribution was was a little bit bimodal. That is, we had a lot of people at the top end and a lot of people sort of at the bottom. But the average was... 40%, people spending 40% of their time on the job doing this thing that's kind of sort of like sales. Now think about that, 40% of your day, that's like 24 minutes of every hour. That's a lot of time. And when people start looking at their work that way, whether they're a teacher, uh, whether they are a physician, uh, whether they are a, a, a nurse, whether they are a contractor, it's like you realize like embedded in all of these these professions, all these jobs is some element of selling, persuading, convincing, cajoling. And I've always thought at a sort of a a higher level is that there's always this like, it always frustrated me because if you look at people's job descriptions and then you look at what they actually do, there's often a big gap. And I think part of that gap is this gap that people spend a, a lot of their time just trying to convince other people. They're trying to get somebody to work on their team rather than another team. They're a boss trying to get their employees to do something different or do something in a different way. They are, they're, they're trying to get their boss to go a different direction. I mean, it's just a big part of what it is. And then if you go to our, you know, the the outside of our work lives, I'm mostly concerned about our work lives and this stuff. But if you go outside of our work lives, I mean, we have, we have like spouses and partners and children and parents and siblings and friends and neighbors and so forth that we're all at some level engaged in this enterprise with.
0: It's interesting. You know, I'm curious like, if the stereotype will really, I mean, you're. I think your book did uh, a great job of, of really shifting the narrative, shifting the stereotypes and movies and all sorts of stuff in pop culture really kind of degrade the stereotype. But I, I hear the same concepts through the, you know, I, I we've interviewed a nurse who said, you know, my job is really to, to show people that they matter and to ask them questions, to feel like that they're seen and and the sale, and I contrast it with a salesperson who's like, my job is to ask questions and to to sales, I, I replace the word with service and to help someone and to see and to put myself in into their world. You know, so I'm super curious, you know, since this book, I mean, it's almost something that I don't know ever as a writer, if you're like, I would love to, you know, I don't know if once you write something, that's it. And you know, there's no kind of like sequel or you know, uh, second generation or you know, update. But if you could go into anything deeper or maybe research that didn't make it in, anything that you might want to probe into deeper and and to look at um, that you were, you know, really interested in?
1: Yeah. Uh, One thing that I didn't explore that I would have is um, kind of sales and persuasion done by groups rather than by individuals, because mine was very much focused on the unit of one, like an individual doing this. And a lot of times you have, you know, like a team that is trying to carry out a project and trying to convince other teams. So I would have looked a little bit more at groups as persuaders rather than simply individuals as persuaders.
0: What situations would would groups be persuading? I'm trying to think of like organizations themselves or kind of like
1: a a team. It could be like uh, five people working at a startup who are trying, who are all of them trying to together, trying to convince a funder to fund them. Um, it could be that uh, inside of a company, a team is trying to convince other teams in a, a direction. It isn't simply me on you. It's like basically our team, the pink team, is trying to persuade the Smith team to get out of the way or to join them or something like that. That all of this stuff doesn't happen one individual to individual. It sometimes happens groups to groups. And I had neglected that.
0: There's like a lot of interactions between, I know
1: you do like a, you talk about social cartography that could be. Yeah. Yeah. That's even, even that is more of a kind of like individual focused. It's not as much about the whole team as an entity. A little bit of a pivot. So really I've always
0: been curious of all of my guests. I kind of like try to bring out kind of, and help them. You always say like, it's always good that people come to answers on their own, not through extrinsic pressures or anything like that. I'm trying to, you know, kind of. I'm really curious about like these the soft skills of sales, and I don't know kind of what research you you found on it. But I always go back to this Josh Burson quote. I don't know if you're familiar, HR analyst, and he always says, and, and you say something similar in one of your books. And a whole new mind is that people think hard skills are hard and soft skills are soft, but it's actually the other way around. Or you know, soft skills are actually much harder to obtain. they are things that. Are most sought after. Behavioral skills are really the the future. They're hard to get in yourself. They're hard to obtain. And hard skills are kind of relatively easy to you know learn and you know are abundant. So just kind of curious, like things like you know skills like curiosity or empathy or just what are these skills? Did you find soft skills that were you know really desirable? Because I know you you talk about introversion and extroversion in the book,
1: and kind of that middle ground is where you know, the key lies. I think we've gotten so far past the hard skills, soft skills conversation in business. I mean, my God. I mean, that was a novel idea in the 1980s. But I think that like anybody who needs convincing of that right now hasn't been paying attention. And so obviously you need both. For me, that's one reason why I wrote a book called A Whole New Mind. If you come in and you're only empathetic, give me a sales role. You're, a, you're selling IT consulting services. If you come into that job and you're only empathetic, all right, only empathetic, but you don't know anything about IT, <laughs> you're going to be terrible at that job, all right? If you come into that job and know only about IT and you're not empathetic, you're going to be terrible at that job. And so like this idea, I-, I can't even believe we're still calling these things soft skills. I feel like anybody who's still even like referring to these things like empathy or like you say, Alex, curiosity, finding connections with people, anybody who's, who still refers to those as, as soft, there's like a Rip Van Winkle character.
0: <laughs> Did you do any research on on that side of it? Because I feel like there's all these organizations like I got to we got to train on this stuff. We got to do behavioral training to beef up our skills in this area. Or you know, how do you think that that relates to sales? What, what should we be doing?
1: It's an interesting question because I'm not sure. Like something like empathy can be trained, and it's something I've thought about a little bit. You know, when we think about skills, like what can be trained? I think you can probably train somebody to use Excel at a basic level, but I don't know if you can train someone to be more empathetic. I think you might be able to coach somebody to be more empathetic. You know, I think that that is a more useful distinction in some ways of like what sorts of skills are trainable and what sorts of skills need not a training approach, but a different kind of approach. I'm not sure exactly how you even call it, a coaching experiential kind of thing. And and my guess is that most things need some measure of both. I, I, I just think that there are different ways of fostering those kinds of capabilities. Like you can train someone to use a paintbrush, right? You can train someone to move the bow on a violin, but I don't think you can train somebody to be an artist. I don't think you can train somebody to be a musician. You know? And so I think you can coach people to be an artist and coach people to be a, I don't even know if coach is the right word. But since to me they're 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 different things. And so the endless pursuit of trying to train things might be trying to train it might be taking us down the wrong road. Do you think um,
0: you know, so if if like because I, you know, I feel like we'll all have to have like certain skills to be able to, you know, do some of the things and not feel like, you know, s- afraid of, of maybe putting ourselves out there and, and kind of learn some of these things that are maybe a little more abstract, something like being curious. So wh- what would you say to the person maybe that's like, you know, Hey, like I'm sitting here, maybe I'm a, a nurse. I've just not ever really considered myself a salesperson. That's a sales, that's for sales. Maybe I'm a graphic designer, you know, and I just feel like that, that word is like, you know, that's just not who I am. You know, I'm not trying to, you know, close people. I'm just doing my job. I'm a, I'm an artist. Right. But, you know, still there are things, ways that you can maybe ask yourself questions or kind of look at
1: certain situations. What would you tell that person? Well, I would tell them to. Um, I, I I totally see where they're coming from. You mentioned this earlier about the word. The word sales is a is a word that some people recoil from. What what I would do in both of those cases is forget about the word and think about what you do. Or maybe like even ask them like, "Tell me what you did today." And so that graphic designer is going to be well, I. Uh, I, you know, using my design software, I laid out this ad and then I showed it to a client. Oh, what did the client think? Well, he didn't like this, but did like that. Did you agree with that? No. Well, what'd you do? Well, I tried to convince him that, But you know, it's like, oh, hey, how about that? You know, or you're a nurse and you have, um, there's a patient who needs to get up and walk periodically, but is very resistant to doing that but you know that it's right for that patient's health. Okay, really, what'd you do? Well, I said, listen, just walk with me 10 steps and that'll be enough. Oh, look at that, you know? So, uh, I mean, that's like foot in the door, you know? So I would have them just literally narrate what they did today and point out to them that a lot of what they did is kind of like sales. I imagine
0: you probably notice things now that like stories, like are are there any stories or things you've just noticed in your day? You probably, I imagine, notice things daily that are uh, either sales to you or sales that you're doing that, you know, maybe most people wouldn't consider it Um, messaging. It's all around us. And you say, you know, we have this, like, it's, it's really just something we have inside of us. Maybe some people haven't unlocked it. Any advice for people on what to think about to, maybe unlock that inside themselves or maybe to for the trained salesperson maybe we could take two of these let's talk about the non-salesperson first anything that you would suggest on how they can unlock it in themselves and then for the trained salesperson how do we become less like money focused commission hungry all for me
1: yeah, i think that for the first group let's go back to first principles so what is a two minute two minute is taking someone else's perspective so try to see the world from someone else's perspective, okay? And what can that mean? That can mean when someone says something to you and you're trying to understand them, repeat it back to them, paraphrase it and see if you've gotten it right. Okay? That's like one very simple thing to do to to get better at uh, at a two minute perspective taking. There's also, as you know, there's a lot of research on mimicry. And you know, even though it sounds duplicitous, we know from a whole pile of research that when we actually mimic People's gestures mimic the way they're sitting, mimic their posture, uh, repeat their language. Uh, that's something that we do naturally as human beings, and that that's actually and so being slightly conscious of that is a way to enhance their uh, ability to undertake someone else's perspective. So I think that those kinds of simple practices will get anybody better at this quality of attunement, which in turn will get them better at. Moving others, and I think it's the same thing with the B, you know, with the buoyancy. All of us get rejected all the time, whether we're in sales or not. And so, how do you, how do you stay afloat in that ocean of rejection? And again, there are all kinds of techniques that we can use to begin to develop that. One of my favorite techniques for that is from Martin Seligman called the three P's. Uh, Rejection feels so bad. That we tend to catastrophize it it feels terrible we say oh my god it's all my fault it always happens and it's going to ruin everything and so what you do is you rebut that and so with the three p so you say is this pervasive is this personal is it entirely my fault and the answer in most cases is no you can always improve but in most cases if you're not getting the deal or someone's not going along with you it's probably not entirely your fault is it entirely personal is it pervasive does it always happen when we get rejected, it feels like it always happens. But again, rebut yourself on that. Is this pervasive? And finally, is this permanent? Again, we, we catastrophize these things. We say, oh, my God, it's going to destroy everything. But most things don't destroy everything. And so that's a technique that anybody can use for remaining buoyant, for, for remaining afloat in this ocean of rejection. Now, clarity, let me come to that, because I, I think these tips, Alex, are useful for both People who aren't in sales, but also but, but for seasoned professionals. Clarity has two dimensions. It's it's a little bit further afield. One of the things about Clarity is that it used to be that, especially in, let, let's say like being a physician or being a car salesperson, okay, same thing. For a long time, the reason you were an expert was because you had access to information that no one else had. Expertise hinged on having privileged access to information. But now, whether we're talking cars or whether we're talking health, expertise doesn't come from having privileged access. Everybody has the information, right? And so where does expertise come from? Expertise comes not from accessing information, but from curating information, from making sense of information, from separating out the signal from the noise and information. And so for the car salesperson, it's someone coming in with a sheaf of things saying, You know, oh, I think that this make is better than that make and this model is better than that model. And the car salesperson saying, "Okay, maybe, but, you know, that's not a great source. And here's what I found in my experience or to take the non-sales example. I mean, here's the thing. Here's the trajectory. It happens all the time with physicians. It used to be back in the, you know, uh, early days of the Internet. People would go on AOL before they went into their doctor, and they'd, they'd, they'd come in with these printouts, and they'd say, doctor, I know what's wrong with me. Uh, uh, you know, Here's the prescription I need. And doctors would be appalled. Doctors would be offended. Doctors are like, no, how dare you? Put that away. <laughs> now you have medical schools that have courses in how do you help a patient sort through the information that she's getting and compiling on, on her own. So you have to think of yourself, there's a return to expertise, but expertise derives not from privileged access, but from your curatorial abilities. The second thing is, is that, and this is a big deal, this goes a little bit to this thing about what's trainable and and what sorts of skills are valuable, which is this, that I mean, you've heard this, there are some people in sales who always are going on saying, I'm a problem solver. I'm not in sales, I'm a problem solver. And that's cool, but problem solving is becoming a commodity because in sales, if your client or customer knows precisely what its problem is, they don't need you very much. You know, they can find it on their own. Or they need you to be one of two or three bidders to drive down the price. Where are you more needed? You're more needed when they don't know what their problem is or they're wrong about their problem. And so the skill is shifted from the skill of problem solving, which is being commoditized across white collar work. And it's going to be commoditized at an even faster clip once some of this AI and machine learning, you know, AI and machine learning is going to is going to, you know, it's like we're at this part of the exponential curve. We haven't hit that. And so, you know, any clearly stated problem with a single answer is not going to be stuff that human beings are going to be doing. So what what matters more is being able to anticipate problems, see around corners, To your word, curiosity, anticipate, those kinds of things end up being more valuable. So I think if we look at these suite of capabilities, attunement, out of your own head into someone else's head, buoyancy, stay afloat in that ocean of rejection, clarity, go from accessing information to curating it from solving existing problems to identifying hidden problems. I think that those are at the white hot center of most white collar work today.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. You know, a lot of people have heard of the word empathy, but then they they've never heard the word attunement. They're like, what is that, Dan? How does it differ from empathy? How do you use both? Both are important. How do you explain that to
1: people? So they're related. They're like siblings, but they're fraternal twins, not identical twins. All right. So so a way to look at them is to is to think of it. I mean, it's overly simplified, but it'll work is that empathy is understanding how people are feeling and attunement perspective taking is understanding what people are thinking and they're both important. So one of them is more emotional. One of them is more cognitive and they're, they're both important. I actually think that in, and there's some evidence of this that in sales sales that they're both important. OK, so just to be clear, they're both important. I think that in sales. In pure sales, I think that the cognitive is actually ends up being a little bit more important. But, but again, they're, you know, brother and sister.
0: Do you think people confuse empathy? Like people, I've heard people describe empathy just like that, like putting yourself into someone's shoes. No, it's
1: still, it's still putting yourself in someone's shoes to see what they feel like. And perspective taking is putting yourself into someone's shoes to understand what they're thinking.
0: Got it. You know, I'm curious, you know, if you could tell us what you think. Uh, about maybe connections between different concepts in sales. Would that be all right? Uh, I've heard you say once that you just have a, a file folder list of uh, different ideas. Then, you know, kind of you're constantly thinking of different things. And I thought I'd just fire off a couple things. Yeah, to- lay it on me. Okay. What's the connection between morality and sales? Is there a connection? Do you think one needs to influence the other? Interesting.
1: That's a great question. Um- well morality is defined as fairness like I I think that the the solution is this that 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 in a world today where buyers of anything have lots of information lots of choices and all kinds of ways to talk back that there's a pragmatic reason to be moral that the the low road is no longer an option or it's it's less of an option there's still scam artists and whatnot around but the low road in sales is actually much harder it's uh, not impossible, but it's it's harder. And so I think that you're better off just taking the, the high road. I think the high road is much more enduring. The the low road is not a long-term strategy. So there's a morality about sort of outright cheating and swindling and deception, all right, things that are, many of which are like against the law. But there are also things like selling somebody something they don't need. I think there's a morality to that too. and I, And I once again, I think you're going to be a, you're going to have a longer career if you are not sticking people with stuff they don't need, but you're actually understanding their real issues and addressing their real issues, and thinking of what you're doing as a form of service rather than something that's purely transactional. It's trying to sell them something. I think you open yourself up to a lot more risks. And, and Dan, uh, you have a
0: long history in politics, and uh, you know working for Al Gore, and so you've you've probably seen both
1: sides of that selling and morality. I imagine. I mean, politics now is just a, such a freaking mess. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to put it. I don't even know what category it belongs in now.
0: Yeah, uh, I agree. Next one. What about the connection between sales and um, the concept of regret? People that are making buying decisions and maybe they, um, they're, they're thinking of like, I don't want to have to go back on this. or Maybe they've bought something and they're like, oh, should I have gotten that? Is there a connection?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you know, the research I've done on regret suggests that there are four core regrets that people have that actually make a big difference in their life and satisfaction and well-being. And in very few instances do they involve buying anything. And so, you're better off not getting too absorbed in regret if you're thinking about lawn furniture or microwave ovens <laughs> and focusing your regrets on the big regrets that people have in their life, which is did I maintain and establish close connections with people? Did I do the right thing? Did I take a risk that was appropriate when I had a chance to take a risk, or did I play it safe? Those are the things that people really regret. Those are the kinds of regrets that I would anticipate.
0: I ask it because um, a lot of times I've had people, you know, in my career, uh, come to me and they're like, you know, Alex, we've been really burned. Uh, in the past by somebody mm. that just looks exactly like you, where we, we, we've been burned in the past and we just, we don't know. Uh, we're just unsure if that's going to, ha- we don't want anything like that to happen again. And so help us understand how you're going to be that feeling. I don't know if it's regret or not, or if yeah. it's just kind of like disdain or whatever or something, but it's like,
1: it stays with them. It increases the the uphill slope. You have to travel through no fault of your own. Yeah. I'm not sure that's regret. I mean, again, it's like, I always use a phrase on this kind of thing. It's like the bad people have polluted the pond. They've made it harder for the rest of us. I mean, that, that drives me nuts when I look at, say, you know, so a lot of my books are in the business section of the bookstores. And you look at some of the other books on the shelf in the business section, not all of them, but, but some of them are just atrocious and they're horrible <laughs> and they never have been published. And so what happens is, is that somebody picks up one of those and it's terrible and then as a consequence, they end up not picking up one of my books because because I can't be there shouting, no, 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 this is different. Is there a solution to, to that? How do you combat that? Convince people that, no, 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 I'm not like all those other... I think what you do is you do is, you know, you focus on what you can control and what you can't. And it's harder to control other people's behavior. But what you can do is focus on your own your own behavior, your own morality, and your own reputation and make that as you know, sterling and inviolable as possible. And I think that over the long term, that's a good strategy. It doesn't insulate you fully from that other stuff, but it can be a kind of an antidote to it.
0: I I think I heard you and Tim Ferriss, you said something like, uh, if you could put anything on a billboard, it's like assume good intenters, people are
1: good. Yeah, I think that's true in a lot of our dealings like within, like in workplaces. If you look at like a lot of workplace policies, if you ask people this question, okay, how many people in your organization generally work hard, care, want to try to do the right thing, willing to put in effort, you know? And people say, I mean, you asked that question, and, and the answer is usually like 95 percent. And yet we have all these policies that are designed for the 5 percent, and they end up shackling the 95 percent. So to me, it's like, it, like if you're, you know, if you're a leader, if you're running an organization, you know, assume that people. Assume that they care and can be trusted and want to do good work and let 95 percent of them affirm that and get rid of the 5 percent who disprove that rather than what we do now, which is like we're going to assume that 95 percent of people are bad. They're going to shirk. They can't be trusted. They need to be monitored. And we're going to design all our policies like that. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, that is funny. Um, I, I noticed it myself. Dan, kind of, you know, as we end off, like, what is your hope for, you know, what that book? Because I think one of the, you know, the greatest lines, like at the end, you say, you know, if you're thinking of sales, like just think, ask yourself two questions. How do I make this person's life better Mm -hmm. as a result? And how is the world better off as well? And a lot of people don't think about that second one. So what is your hope for where people will
1: lead or where sales uh, will be viewed in the future? At one level, I want to destigmatize it, especially among the smarty pants who look down on it and recognize that it requires a great degree of, of uh, intellect sophistication. And then certainly, if in the pure business sense, it's some of what makes the economy go. So it's urgent and important and significant and worthy of respect. That's one thing. And the second thing, though, is I want people to... I mean, maybe it goes back to your earlier question, which is essentially saying the best way to be a good persuader over the long term, the best way to be a good influencer over the long term, the best way to be good at selling over the long term is to be a decent human being, is to tell the truth, to keep your word, to help people get better. And I think that if more that that's the kind of approach that can have a, a cascading effect where if a few people start doing it, other people start doing it, which means more people start doing it and suddenly the world changes. Hopefully, we can have more movies <laughs> that are uh, describing people
0: as it. Dan, I always like to end off on a fun question because I feel like uh, there's this art of sales, right? We, we all have this individual ways of practicing fundamentals, whether they be it with your book or, you know, uh, Cialdini's book, uh, it. You know, we take these fundamentals and we, you know, we use our experiences to practice them. So, this is just a fun question about you and to get people to know you. So, it is what is something that could only, or would only happen, maybe an event. If I asked your wife or kids, that thing is, that is just so totally Dan. What is just one thing that could only or would only happen to Dan Pink?
1: Honestly, I mean, if you ask my wife and kids that they would say like, what's, what's one unique thing about me is that I wear shorts, like running shorts year round. Like <laughs> in the middle of January. And I'll put on a pair of shorts. And I will, you know, even go outside in shorts. I sort of dress, unfortunately, this is not a good thing about me. I sort of dress like a, a 1980s gym teacher. <laughs> <laughs> like I put a pullover, I put this, this this quarter zip over, but what I have is a, is a is an, an NC State, yeah. I would say I own, this is embarrassing, I own... 45 or 50 college t-shirts. I could go every day of a month wearing a, a different college t-shirt, even though, you know, obviously I don't have affiliations to most of these colleges. So I'll, I'll be walking down the street here in Washington and like someone will shout out of the window, go Shockers! Because I'm, <laughs> I'm wearing my Wichita State team. And you're, just,
0: yeah. and you're just like, okay, cool. Oh, and what am I, oh, I'm wearing that today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah it's always startling to me because I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> That's great, uh, Dan. Thank you so much just for the insights, and you know, hope to continue to learn from you. What what would you ask, or what would you want people to to do to kind of just um, learn more about you know what you're putting out into the world?
1: Uh, they can check out my website, which is danpink.danpink.com. There's uh, descriptions of all the books and um, all kinds of free resources and a newsletter and all that kind of good stuff.
0: Well, I will direct people there, Dan Pink. Uh, you know, I can't thank you enough. We met really in person just for a few a minute or two after his speech and Billy and it's uh, you know taken us to some great places. Uh, thank you. I, you you found your train that day hopefully probably
1: <laughs> I'm not here. I made it to Washington eventually. yeah all right thank you so much for joining. All right Alex me. great talking to you.
0: Hey gang all right Wow you made it to the end. I know your time is valuable so thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending your time here with me. If you heard a quote you liked, got a quick bit of value, or you have an idea that can help convince others to join, I urge you to take a minute and leave a five-star rating and review. That helps us gain influence and bring some really great guests on to add even more value to you and others. You can also always contact me directly to tell me your thoughts, I'd love to hear from you. All my info is in the notes. Let's help convince anyone that they have the ability to sell well just by being great humans. And this podcast is proof. All right, see you on the next episode of Stories of Selling Human.